0: Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thanks, man. <clears throat> My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be by the community table. If you have any questions, you can, you can come up and talk to me about it then as well. Um, but happy you're here. Happy if you're watching online. And if you brought a Bible or use an app, we're going to be on Matthew 6 today. Matthew 6, like Jake just read. <clears throat> it's going to be a, a helpful passage for us today. Maybe a little different than passages on prayer you've heard in the past. Um, But while you're turning there, there's a story I don't tell often because it's a little bit cringy for me. (laughs) But as a new disciple at the age of 20, um, I was challenged by a guy who was primarily the one responsible for shaping me in my early years as a growing college student. Um, Those were some crucial years. He was the one that I met with the most, who formed me the most. And he challenged me to meet him every single Thursday morning at the church building at 5.30 a.m. to pray with him for an hour. Does that sound early to you, 5.30 a.m.? It is, it's very early to get up, drive across town, meet one guy in a building and pray for an hour. Um, But the only person that likes a challenge more than the 47-year-old version of me is a 20-year-old version of me. So challenge accepted. I was there. It felt so Navy SEAL to me to be up when no one else was up and to be praying when no one else would be praying, um, except for those who really love Jesus, and I really love Jesus, and I just wanted to learn. And it was a a very steep couple of years for me. But it was just the two of us, and this is the format. We would meet, turn the music up really loud because no one else is there, and we would walk around the sanctuary and pray on our own for 30 minutes And then at 30 minutes, we would gather together, just me and this guy, and we would pray together. We'd pray for the city, pray for our neighbors, pray for the college campus, pray for revival, pray for awakening. Just pray, right? It was awesome. It's where I learned how to pray. It's where I found my own voice. Everyone's got a little bit of a different voice and personality when they pray. That's where I found mine. Um, But it did not start there. At first, what I would do for a long time is for the first 30 minutes, I would just walk around and kind of work on my script for what I was gonna do in the back half in the last 30 minutes. So I didn't sound like a, just a total baboon. So I didn't wanna look stupid. So I'm like, well, what can I say? What will, and I would work out this checklist of things, even phrases, maybe if I use this phrase here, maybe if I say these keywords there, and I would just mentally work out, it'd take me 30 minutes. And then when I get there and I would spend it all in like three minutes, right? Because that's how prayer is. I just didn't wanna look dumb. And I would always ask myself when walking around in that first 30 minutes, what makes for a good prayer? What makes a good prayer, anyway? I mean, it sounds so goofy when I say all this out loud. I mean, that's why I don't tell that story, right? But isn't that a question we all ask? What makes a good prayer? What makes a prayer a good one, right? Is it, is it going to have a certain feeling to it? Is something going to happen for sure if the prayer is a good prayer? Am I going to feel a, a certain faith that I didn't feel before? Does it have to happen before 6 a.m.? All these questions, we just don't really know all the time. Now, while we're walking through this series and we're in the last one-third of this series on discipleship for normal people, I'd like to just answer today one question, and that's what makes a good prayer? What makes for a good prayer? It's the most dominant of spiritual disciplines we have or a habit of grace. It's one of the most dominant things we do to connect with the Lord, it's widespread. Even people that don't love Jesus, even people that are not Christians would say that they pray. Except for whenever I meet with people who are mature, who love Jesus, who've been around the block a little bit, still prayer ends up being something that's very awkward for them. Maybe they're frustrated by it. There's definitely some friction in the gears when it comes to this thing called prayer. And for reason. There's a reason for that. You know, in the beginning, before the serpent and the fall in the garden... Mankind would have discourse with God, and it we'll would carry zero problems. Imagine that. Imagine speaking with God in such a way that you never felt naked, exposed, ashamed. That's how it was before the fall. Now, that would change one dark day, of course. In Genesis 3, 8, stay in Matthew 6, by the way, but in Genesis 3, we see this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is a comfortable time to walk and to commune with God. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So before they hid out of shame, communion with God would be good and natural. To have asked one of them, hey, what makes for a good prayer? Would have been odd. It would have been odd, maybe an inappropriate question. They might not have even understood what that meant because they never knew a prayer that was not a good one. They never knew of a type of communion with God that would be awkward in any way. But since the fall... We've all felt the friction and the frustration of prayer. And if we're honest, and let's just be honest for a moment, sometimes we wonder if it even works. All right? And before you get upset and email me, I want you to ask yourself how often you have told somebody that you would pray for them or lift them up. How often have you told them to do that you you would you would do that and then forgot later on? It's for no other reason than we just don't, we're not really convinced it will work. Think about it whatever work means. (laughs) We're not sure that it has very much effect to it, or else we would pray. If we knew 1,000% that it was going to change the outcome, we would do it. We would do it. Here's the thing. We know we're not supposed to feel this way about prayer, so we pretend that we don't, but we do. We do feel this way, and so we take what's already frustrating and what's already carrying a lot of friction, and then we add shame to it, But then there's a lot of questions that we have to throw in the same bucket as well, right? How long exactly should a prayer be? Should it always be alone? I mean, how long do we praise God in our prayers before we shift gears and start asking for things? Like, what's the appropriate amount of time, right? How do we do this? How do we know if what we're thinking in the moment of prayer is from God or if it's from us? How do we know if we've prayed with enough faith? What does that bar even look like? If I decide not to pray for something, could it happen anyway? If so, why even pray? When I pray, do I pray to the Father, do I pray to the Son, or do I pray to the Spirit? What does prayer without ceasing even mean? These are all great questions, so many questions, right? Here's the good news, we're not going to answer very many of those today. (laughs) I'll let you walk out of here with those questions, I have time to hit one thing. But there are a lot of questions, and sometimes when it comes to us doing the best we can with this thing called prayer, it almost feels like we've had a stroke Or we've had a concussion because we can't make the dots connect. We can't make it make sense in our head. Adding to the frustration and the shame and the questions is looking around on the landscape of Christendom and seeing people where it looks like they know how to do something that you don't know how to do. That it's easy for them. It's clean, right? It's fluid. It's consistent. It's something that they enjoy, but not for you, right? Listen, Jesus is so very kind to us. Um, because he doesn't leave us grasping in the dark. He knew what Genesis 3 was going to do. right? He knew that it would forever change what was a cool walk in the cool of the day. and It would make it something that is frustrating for you and me. Less natural, less easy. He knew that our instinct would be to duck and cover instead of race to him and enjoy him in prayer. He knew this. So what does he do? He takes time to teach us what prayer is. Then he shows us what prayer is, and then he empowers us to do it. So very helpful. So very helpful. Let's look at Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is going to be where we stay, or that's going to be where you're going to stay in your Bible. We'll dance around a little bit, but this is going to be the pivotal scripture for us. And I'm going to start reading in verse 5, but I'm not going to read for very long. Matthew 6, 5 is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. It says, and when you pray, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, they think that they will be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him pray then like this let's pause there for a moment before we even jump into this right this is important before we even jump into this prayer that is the most recited prayer in human history Jesus takes a just a second and he warns us how not to pray you catch that This is a teaching in the negative before it's a teaching in the positive, okay? He's warning us against hypocrisy and contractual emptiness that we can't carry into our prayer and our communion with God. And this is a problem we're going to maybe dance with a little bit when we read passages like this. We've talked about this um, here in this setting a few times, and that is whenever we see villains, like a hypocrite or a Pharisee or a Gentile in this case, whenever we see this, we want to imagine ourselves as potentially being one of those people. What we tend to do is we read about villains and we see ourselves on the sidelines, right? We're the third party that's just watching on. Like, like if you go to the zoo and you see these unintelligent primates throwing rocks at each other or something. That's how we view the villains in this book, but not so, friends. We, we are meant to slip into this and receive the teaching as they would have received the teaching. This is important for us because I wonder, I wonder, How many of his disciples that heard this teaching felt corrected in this moment? Felt corrected. I mean, I think maybe you don't. I do. I imagine sometimes these disciples coming out of like a a prayer-less life. Like they're trying to assemble this thing called a prayer life. And they watch Jesus pray off by himself. And they think to themselves, what is he doing? It looks like he's praying into the wind. It looks like he's just talking to himself. We must ask him what he's doing and how to do it. That's the way I imagine it, but that's not the way it is. They came from a culture steeped in prayer, right? Prayer is just who they were as a people. They knew it from an early age. I mean, it's only now. It's only now in 2023 that less than half of our adult population prays. We're only 60 years away from prayer being ripped from schools, which also ripped it out of mainstream culture, right? It's only now that we brazenly say on social media, keep your thoughts and your prayers to yourself whenever a crisis hits. It's only now that we will see on primetime television someone saying that prayer is a sign of mental instability. It's only now that we see that. It's not a part of our culture now, but back then it was to the original listeners. They would have grown up understanding prayer, trying to pray And they would have struggled, just like you and me. They would have had friction, just like you and me, right? Nothing changes. They saw Jesus pray. They were awkward at it. They wanted to know how to do it. So I find some help in this. And the first thing he does is he speaks of these hypocrites. Hypocrite is a word that we use today, maybe with a little bit of a more evil connotation than it was meant back then. Although it's not a great person to be back then, it just means actor or stage actor, someone that holds up a mask but says this is the real me, and they do it so convincingly that we all buy it, which is why we all pay a lot of money to watch movies, right? That's not really an action figure. That's just a guy. It's an actor. He's got his own trailer. They've got a catered lunch in front of it, right? But we buy it because they are so good. He is so good. She is so good. That's what a hypocrite is. They would have understood that to be a hypocrite back then, where the public identity is very impressive, but it's not real, not real. And I think Jesus must have had the Pharisees in mind here because we see so many words said against the Pharisees being hypocritical. Here's one in Luke 18. And stay where you're at, but this is a more famous one. Two men went up into the temple to pray, Jesus says, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, first of all, what a jerk. Do you ever read this and go, what a jerk this guy. I'm thankful I'm not like other men. Who even says that? Like who brings themselves to say, Lord, (laughs) I am so thankful I'm not like them. Who says that? Well, a hypocrite says that. Maybe they're unaware. Maybe they're totally aware. But hypocrisy doesn't require you be aware of the fact that you're not being genuine. Hypocrisy is what we are very quickly and capable of being ourselves. We're capable of being hypocrites. I think we mostly do this because we're afraid of what people would think of the real us. The real us. The real us is far less impressive than the, the addition that we put out of our public selves. This is what I was doing on those early mornings at that church building as a 20-year-old. I was being a hypocrite. Now listen, but here's the thing, I, I loved God. I wanted everything he had to give. I was all in. I was riding the tip of the wave of adventure. I wanted it, if he had it to give, I wanted I wanted to do great things for God. I was just, a, I was just afraid of being authentic. I was afraid of being real. I didn't think that the real me had any value to anyone. It didn't have any value to God. I I felt like to be valuable, I needed to be someone else entirely, right? The clutch phrase that we read is that they may be seen by others. That's the phrase. Self-marketing in our prayer, it brings us our reward in full in that moment, which is no reward at all. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this is where we kind of pull away from the passage because we think we don't pray on street corners or in synagogues. And that's right, we don't. We have something more appropriate, and that's social media. Social media, right? Happens to be our feeds. How many times have you posted something or interacted with a post? It was nothing more than a virtue signal. Nothing more than projected acting. Trying to get other people to see you in a certain way. That's not really you. It's a mask you're holding up, but you're saying, this is the real me. It's not the real you. You know it. They know it. And just because we use Christian speak when we put those up there, or post half of a C.S. Lewis quote, doesn't mean that we're not capable of self-gloss, because we are. And this is why it's as important for us, because it's the heart that wants to be impressive by others that will also fumble with prayers when they're on their own, when they're in solitude, when they're in quietude. As Jesus says, when they're in the room with the door shut, or what we have called over the years a prayer closet for whatever reason. Solitude is terrifying to us to be alone. Charles Spurgeon would speak on this with other pastors all the time. And he would say, quietude is this place that men reject because it reveals their inward poverty. They have a hard time coming face to face with who they really are. And when we are heavier in our public prayer than we are in our private prayer, what it shows us is the solitude that really generates beautiful prayers terrifying to us. So we just don't do it. And what ends up happening is 98% of the prayers that we pray is gonna be in public with other people. We're so terrified to be alone with God. Because it's when we're in the silence of our room with the door closed that the quiet is most deafening. It's where time stands still. It's where we see our inward poverty. There's nothing to showcase. No one but just you and the Lord. You see, what Jesus is not doing here is kicking on public prayer. He's not doing that. Just the temptation to be impressive. But this is where the gospel comes alongside and really helps us as a people really dying to be impressive. And that's the fact that your identity, your value to others and to God is not shaped by your impressive works. They were shaped by the impressive work of Christ. We are Christ-shaped in that regard. So what this means is is you're free. You are actually free. You have a freedom to square your shoulders with the inward poverty you see and know that you are loved. You are able to come face to face with all of your lack, all of your issues, all of your regrets, all of your hypocrisy, everything you bring to the table and know that God loves you in that moment and you too can walk with God in the cool of the day. You can walk with him in the cool of the day. And that's so good. That's good news to me. Because I rarely feel put together when I approach the Lord in prayer. Rarely. That means never. And then he, he, he pivots for a moment because he gives a second example. And he talks about Gentiles. Gentiles here is just a, a code word for those outside the family of God. Okay, this is the easiest way to know why he's using that word. But he's speaking about how they pray as a hope to manipulate God's reaction by their format of prayer how they say certain things, the repetition of certain things, how they would phrase words to maybe generate a more powerful return. We see a picture of this in action in 1 Kings. Again, stay where you're at. And it says this, and these are prophets of Baal that are kind of competing with Elijah. It's a very famous scene. And he says this, and they took the bull, this is the prophets of Baal, they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. What? This is nuts when you really read it. I mean, we've read it so many times, we forget about how weird this is. That's weird, friends. But again, it's easy for us to read this and see it as a spectator because we would never cut ourselves. And it's true. We wouldn't. But we'd fast, wouldn't we? Oh, we'd cut. We do. We cut ourselves in a different way. We would fast in order to manipulate God to give us something that we extra, extra, super duper want. We talked about this in our spiritual disciplines class a little bit this morning because i mean we are in the lent season so it is kind of a, an appropriate time to talk about that but when we think that we can pry something from god's unwilling hands by just not eating how are we different from being a prophet of baal in that moment not very not very In fact, in Isaiah 58, we see an interaction between people who have this mechanical and contractual way of heaping up empty phrases, the way of maybe doing certain things in a certain way in order for God to to promise to give them something. We see this in Isaiah 58. And these people, after they did not get what they wanted, they yell out, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, behold. In the day of your fast, the Lord says, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Now, Lent started on Wednesday. Some of you know that. Some of you never heard the word before. Don't sweat it. It's just a 40-day period of fasting where you can give up something, whether it's, you know, caffeine or meat or social media or just food, whatever you want to do. You give it up in a way of commemorating and symbolized by Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness of fasting. Um, I've never practiced it in the past. This is my first year to practice it. I'm giving up a few things for the next 40 days but this is what I know going into it. My sacrifice will not command God's reaction. I'm fine with that. This is why. I'm looking for his face. I'm not looking for his hands. I'm looking for a connection that's deeper. I want to leave change by how close I came to him. I don't want to leave change because he did something for me. There's going to be a little bit of a difference in that. Lent for us, fasting for us, can sometimes be a mechanical motion to make God not upset to us, to make him maybe more familiar and friendly to us, God that we barely know. And when we do this, we can be just like these prophets of Baal. Or maybe we just stitch some phrases together that we think God is going to be extra attentive to. We'll throw enough thys and thous and the word trespass, something in there that we would never say in any conversation, as if God would hear us say that and go, oh. Wait a minute, did you just say the word trespass? Well, friend, I'm all ears now. I thought you were just talking, but you really got my attention. Go ahead, ask away. How can I be helpful for you? We, We King James our prayers up because we think that maybe if we could just thread it all together, God will do something for me right now. And in this, we're not looking to commune with God. We're looking to be hallowed. There's a weird word hallowed. This is where we get it, though. Let's look at Matthew 6, 9. So we're going to jump in and read this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Listen, when we scrub the Queen's English away from this, especially the word hallowed, all we get is, Father, let your name be made holy. Be made holy. You see, the the original word construction is a little bit tricky here. Instead of saying, Father, make your name holy, what we're really saying is, Father, let your name be made holy. Sounds like a nerd distinction that nerds would care about. It's bigger than that, though, right? So, again, it is not, Father, make your name holy. It is, God, make your name be made to be holy. It's a request for God to see to it that others take action and do things, say things, live in a way that his name is glorified. That his name is glorified. It's like, it's like praying, God, let this creation, full of man and woman and moment, let this creation glorify who you are. Let what we do, what we say, how we carry ourselves glorify who you are. Let our lives bring you fame on this earth. That's just another way of saying that. The problem with hallowing the Lord's name is we ourselves want to be hallowed when we approach prayer. It's us. We want to be hallowed. So what Jesus does is he wisely leads us to pray in such a way that we stake our prayer and anchor it to the ground with the idea that God's glory is the center of gravity for all words that are going to come out of our mouth, right? See, I can't focus on the whole Lord's prayer today. I can't do it. I mean, it's a whole sermon series. It'd take months to really just digest and pull this thing apart so that we could understand it. But I could do one thing. I could find one word, hallowed. I think it's the most important word in the prayer, to be honest with you. We can do that because what I'm most interested in you today is to not walk out of here an expert on the Lord's Prayer, but it's to understand how your posture is as we come to God, to maybe see some shape come to our prayers, to feel normal when we pray. God being hallowed brings a stability to our prayer. It brings an equilibrium to our prayer. What is most valuable in this world becomes the substance that is laced around and holding together everything we ask of him. And it brings perspective to everything that we say. Lord, let your will be done so that you would be glorified. Let your kingdom advance so that you would be glorified. Give me things today that I really need so that you'd be glorified. Let my forgiveness of others be seen to glorify you. Let the fact that I walk in forgiveness be something that glorifies you. Let my sanctification and growth be something that glorifies you. Let the way I spend my money glorify you. Let the way I make money glorify you. Let the way I interact with others glorify you. Let my health coming back into alignment glorify you. Let everything I do glorify you. Let everything I need glorify you. See what we do naturally is the opposite and we will chop prayer into two categories. We will have words to elevate God at the very beginning so we don't feel guilty for not doing it, and then we will have words that serve us. And that's what we do. I'll tell God he's great for a little bit and then have a list of things that would be great for me. <laughs> and although we are led to ask for our needs, give us this day our daily bread, if all of our discourse exclusively revolves around our problems, then our universe will shrink to the size of us, and everything falls out of context, out of context of perspective. Our prayers become unstabilized. We lose all equilibrium. It takes the scope of our pursuit down to just asking God for things for our own comfort, for our own glory, hallowed be my name. That's what it does. We forget, and this is a very important thing as we grow as disciples, we forget that we are most satisfied in God when he is most glorified in us. We are most satisfied, most content in God when he is most glorified in our lives. Those things are not a mile apart. They're touching each other. Your happiest, most joyful life is when people see you and reflected in your life is the total glory of God. They can see God clearly. They worship God. They want to know more about God. That is where you find your most joyful life. (laughs) It's when our lives reflect the holiness of God. I mean, have you ever met somebody whose problem is just... I know you've met people like this. They've got a problem. It's a minor league one. On a scale of 10, it's like a 2, 3, or a 4, maybe a 5, right? But when you watch them, they can't shut up about it, and they're acting like it's the end of the world, right? It's just going to end them. And you just, you, just, you almost want to say something. You're almost like, yo, listen, I get it. But there are people dying, you know. I mean, let me let me say, they're like kids starving. There's diagnosis that's happening today in different families that are wrecking their families forever. There's all kinds of horrible things that are happening, but go ahead and tell me about that slow internet traffic and how it's gonna end your world, how you can't get that thing done on time. Go ahead and tell me about your neighbor, right? It's so small. Few things are sadder to me than seeing someone spin in their own boring small cosmos. It's shrunk because they're in the middle of it. It's tiny now. And what this will do in prayer is it creates this anthropocentric prayer that is really tight around us, where we only acknowledge God as one who gives favors. It is what they call a therapeutic deism, where we just want God to give us stuff, to relieve our pains, to make me feel a certain way. So small, so small. But God centered prayers remind us that we're in a universe where we're not in the center. Oh no, we're way out. He's the center. God-centered prayer reminds us that God is hallowed. He is hallowed. He is to be hallowed by everything we lift towards him. His glory, my comfort. His glory, my strength. My comfort, his glory. His glory, my joy. His glory, my peace. As Paul says to the Roman church in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and then it says this, to him be glory forever, amen. You will not find a more pure prayer than that, friends. That's what they call a doxology, right? A prayer, a statement about God and his theology. So good for us, because here's the great news for you and me as gospel people. This otherworldly, separate, holy, hallowed God loves you and me so intimately that we can still find him in the cool of the day. Even you and me, rebels and villains, He's still there. No shame. We don't have to duck and cover anymore. We don't have to cover ourselves. There's no friction. And this is why. In another garden, in another garden, Jesus prays for you and me. He intercedes. Just like he taught us to pray, he prays. Right before he steps out and reverses the curse of the first garden, we find him praying in another garden. A passionate prayer. It's gonna be this last prayer before his torture begins. And from this point on, all prayers will be under strain and pain. But friend, listen, if you ever want to see what Jesus would pray for you individually, if you were just you and him in a room and he was to intercede for you and he was to pray for you by name, if you want to know what that looks like, just read John 17. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's talking about his disciples, but there is a clutch phrase in there where he says, and all who come after them. And all who are like them, all who come after them. Let's read the first five verses of this in John you can stay where you're at if you want. This is going to be really quick. But in John 17, this is what starts off. I'm only going to read five verses. This starts off what is commonly called the high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I love how he anchors this prayer. He says, glorify your son. Why? That your son may glorify you. My glory Your glory, hallowed be your name. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's saying, make my life glorious. And by the way, glory for him in this moment is a bloody cross and a triumphant resurrection. Make my life glorious that others would make your name holy, that others would be amazed by you, enjoy you. So what we see in the gospel is our rebellion in the first garden provokes Jesus' humble prayer in the second garden, this garden. His work makes a way for you and me to commune with God in the cool of every day, in the cool of every moment. Without Jesus, your prayers hit a stone ceiling. You see, this is why we say the gospel does not just win us from death, it sustains us in life. It even frames how we pray. It even forms and fashions, styles, how we pray. We have a gospel-framed prayer here. what? When you approach God, you approach God as a free person if you were in him. If you are a Christian, when you come before the Lord in prayer, you are a free person. There's no need to hide in shame. Adam and Eve, they hid in shame, and so he does. He kills an animal, sacrifices that animal for their skin to clothe their shame, to clothe them. Listen, we no longer need to hide because we've been clothed, not from a sacrificed animal, but from a sacrificed king, that we would wear his righteousness. We don't have to hide behind trees or religion or good deeds. But we could be ourselves. Because the good work, the hard work has already been done. So what makes a good prayer? The work of Jesus. The work of Jesus makes a good prayer. The work of Jesus. He makes our awkward petitions, our imperfect cries audible and understood by God. So just start with where you're at. Learn what I did many years ago. You have your own voice in prayer just between you and the Lord with the door shut, whatever that looks like for you. Start where you're at. And when you cannot express yourself, there's something beautiful in here, and that's what the Holy Spirit will come in and pick up the load. He'll carry the weight. Romans 8, 26, it says this. This is Paul. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Hey, listen, does it encourage you to know that God has made provision for those of us who are awkward in our prayers and we don't even know what to say? Or maybe we've got such a pain or a strain, we don't have any words for it. Or maybe we just don't have strength for it. Or maybe we've run out of strength for it. And all we can do is just sigh or groan or be silent. Does it help you to know that God makes provision for that? That he comes along and intercedes for us? Man, I'm so refreshed by this. Listen, listen. You can be yourself before God. (laughs) You could just be yourself. You could show up and plop down at his feet and adore him. Use your own words. There's nothing to hide. Man, you could be yourself. You see, as we repent in front of passages like this, we don't just repent for an absence of prayer. That's the easy go-to, right? That's the fill in the blank. Well, I guess I'll repent because I don't pray enough. But what is the reason of your absence in prayer? That's where we repent. Why? Is it because God isn't strong? Is it because he's not good? Is it because you think it's not effective because he doesn't care? That's where we repent. Our beliefs that are sick and toxic about God. So much. What is behind the therapeutic deism? What is behind our hypocrisy? What is behind our empty phrases that we tend to heap up? Is it just that prayer isn't worth it? It doesn't work? God is not good? You're all alone? You're better off that way? Those are the harder questions that we ask and that we lay before God. Christ. Listen, if you're here, you're watching and you're struggling with maybe a third of what I said or half of what I said. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're just kind of searching it out. You're trying to figure this thing out. You know that you're surrounded by people that love Jesus. You bump into them and maybe you want to know more but you just don't. You're trying to figure this thing of prayer out. Have you felt like your prayers have hit a ceiling? Like they're just not landing. What you need to know is that God still walks in the cool of boring days. God still walks in the midst of terrifying crises. He is a good listener, and he provokes us. He carries us. But this is what I would say to you. He's leading you to pray a specific prayer, maybe the most important prayer you could ever pray, the one that will beget so many prayers. And here's where it is, Luke 18. This is the last half of that parable that we did not finish. The Pharisees said one thing, but the tax collector in Luke 18, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he'd beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, this is the most basic of all prayers. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing flowery here. <laughs> There's no King James, no empty phrases, no hypocrisy, no magic tricks here, no crowd, no format, no empty phrases, no mechanics. It's just a humble heart that says, I don't know what to do. I'm just desperate. I know I, I got to change. I know I need you. That's all I know. I would just submit to you that you would pray that today. Just start where you're at. Use your own words. Pray that today. And listen, if that's you, I want you to connect with us somehow. Whether you're filling out a connect card out there and just saying, hey, I prayed an awkward prayer and I don't even know what it means. Let us get in touch with you and walk alongside you. You can come up and talk to us. But I really want you to help us by helping you come by and processing that with you. And the good news, and I love to cast a vision of forever in every sermon, but we have one day in the land of forever where God will be hallowed by our perpetual praise. Oh, he'll be hallowed. Our prayers are gonna change shape. Did you know that? One day your prayers will have to change shape because sin is gone. And not just because sin is gone, but because we're gonna walk with God in the cool of the day where we see him just as he sees us. How crazy is that? We're not gonna be in a garden. We're gonna be in a city far better than the garden. Our prayers are going to sound a little bit more like this. Our Father, right before us, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom is everywhere. Powerful, grand, just as you promised. You are my daily bread now and forever. I have no hunger or need or lack and I never will. You have forgiven me of all of my rebellion and I've got no friction with you or anyone else. You have protected me from the evil one successfully and there is no threat to my life of evil ever again. For from you and through you and to you still are all things. To you still be glory forever. Amen. Until then, what makes a good prayer? Jesus and his work and you just being normal. That's where we start. Hallowing his name with our prayers and with our lives.